We're going to carry on this morning with what has become now a, a four-part study, looking at the coming judgment of the church. And, and it's really springboarding from that scripture that's there from First Peter 4.17. Uh, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And we've said already, really what this verse is saying is the season of judgment that is coming, that the scripture speaks so much about, is going to begin at the house of God, to begin at the church. And it may seem a very strange idea on the surface, and yet throughout scripture we have warning after warning after warning about that which is going on within the church and that God will deal with it, that God will judge it. In Matthew 13, we have obviously the wheat and the tares, and God is going to bring that separation between the wheat and the tares, and the tares are judged, and the wheat are going to be gathered into his barn. A great picture of the whole situation we're talking about. And again, this is following on from our study in Timothy, and in Timothy, Paul warns Timothy of the dangers that were coming upon them as a church, the reality that there would be people even from within the church that would bring in uh, destructive and damnable heresies and so on. So that's what we've been looking at, that's what we're going to continue to look at. Uh, In the first session, we looked at apostasy throughout Scripture, and really the simple conclusion there is every time we see apostasy, God brings judgment. He won't leave it unjudged. Every time people turn away from him, then he brings judgment. Last time we looked at this incredible model that we see between the history of Israel and the history of the church, mapped out, of course, in those seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that just as Israel started off with that time of espousal uh, in the wilderness and the church started the same way, the church went on to that time of suffering, as did um, the the nation of Israel, but the time of victory as they entered into the, the promised land. Uh, then, of course, the rejection of the king uh, by Israel and the church rejected God's rule effectively and put man's rule in place. And we see these kind of things, the division of the kingdom, and we see then the division of the church. And, and all those details we looked at last week, review the, the session, the notes or the slides are online if you want to look at that again. Uh, but it's an incredible parallel. The more you study it, the more you see um, that God clearly has worked in history, just as Ecclesiastes 1.9 tells us that that which has been is that which shall be. What we're going to look at briefly this morning is just the future of the church, again seen through the history of Israel. Well, in order to do that, let me just remind you, in case you're not familiar, I'm sure you are, but just the history of Israel. So, in 1 Kings 11, we're told there uh, of the apostasy uh, of Solomon. This is where it really starts to happen, and the, the, then the division of the kingdom. Now, we know that Israel wanted a man to rule over them. They wanted to be like the nations round about them, and so they, they want a king. Now, the church did the same thing and established the, the papacy. Uh, we see that parallel. But the, the man that was chosen was Saul. But he wasn't of the line of Judah. Well, it wasn't of that line that had already been prophesied that the Messiah, the king, would come from. So straight away we realized this was never God's best plan for Israel. But he allowed it um, because the nation had cried out. But that, of course, then gives way to, to David, the one that God really had chosen and had been prophesied to be the king, and so on. And Second Samuel and First Chronicles really deal very much with the life of David and his failures and mistakes, but the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. After David, though, we get on to Solomon. Solomon should have been just a success story. And, of course, the kingdom gets to, to its highest point, its greatest uh, stature, uh, amongst the nations at that point, but spiritually things start to decline. 
As Solomon does all the things that the kings were not supposed to do, he kind of goes back to Egypt and brings horses and he has multiple wives and so on. And all the things that the law said a king should not do, we find that Solomon does. As a result of that, the Lord says that he's going to divide the kingdom and he's going to take most of the kingdom away from Solomon. And so we end up with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, becoming king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And then Jeroboam, this other individual, leading this kind of insurrection against the, the king and taking the northern tribes effectively about 931 B.C. And that becomes the northern kingdom of Israel. If you look at it on a map, you see there uh, the top half here. This is what is known as Israel. And typically it was made up of ten tribes. And then the southern kingdom was really Judah. Kind of Benjamin grouped in with that. Uh, There is a a myth you may have heard and you may come across about the ten lost tribes. It's nonsense. It's not scriptural. What happened was that the godly people in the north traveled down south because this is where they still worship the Lord and so on. And the ungodly people from here here traveled north so there was no lost tribes and there's plenty of scriptural evidence to prove that Um, but that was the division of the kingdom now when we go on to the kings of judah you notice there's some green ones the green ones were the good kings you notice there's not many of them, was there? There's only five out of all of those kings uh, that were good that there's, there's good things said and even they messed up um, a lot of them towards the end of their lives. Uh, in fact, Asa particularly, um, Hezekiah and Josiah all had kind of real failings at the end of their lives. It's always hard to finish well. Uh, it's something we should be mindful of, and particularly as we see the day drawing near. This is why scripture talks about, this is what we're really looking at, the, the deception that abounds and how easy it is to go off on these tangents. Uh, finishing well is so important. So they are the, the kings of Judah, and you see down there, this will be on the web uh, later if you want the details, but again, roughly when the prophets that we read about in Scripture prophesied during which period of time. We're going to look at Jeremiah in a minute, we're going to come back to him. Uh, if we look at the history of the kings of Israel, there wasn't a good king amongst them. Not one king is there anything good said about. All of them were kings who rebelled against God, who didn't serve God. Even the ones that had that glimmer of hope all failed. And you notice also this continual kind of changing of dynasty. You know, we have kind of a father and a son, and then it changes dynasty, and then again a son, and then it changes dynasty again, and so on. The longest we have here is under Jehu, and he was prophesied that he was four uh, to four generations of his children would sit on the throne. And that's exactly what happens. But if you know the last one, only managed six months. It's just a, it's just a mess. As we look at the history of the kings of Israel, uh, just complete disobedience to, toward God. So, let's have a, a look at these things. Now again, that verse I said a minute ago, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, says this, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. This is God saying that history just repeats itself. And God intentionally allows us to see that this model that we've, we've looked at in the Old Testament already is being repeated now with the church. Hegel made this comment. He said, man learns from history that man learns nothing from history. I love that. This is such a simple quote, but it's so true. Now, Peter tells us the same thing in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 2, one verses 1 and 2, he says, But there were false prophets also among the people. He's speaking about Israel. He's saying there were false prophets amongst Israel. And notice he says, even as there shall be false teachers among you. He says that there were false prophets in Israel. And it's going to be exactly the same in the church. 
So we should expect to see these kind of models. We look at the false prophets in Israel and it gives us a great indication of what is to come and the kind of things we should expect to see. And he says, those false teachers among you who bring in, um, shall, uh, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them. You'd think that couldn't happen, wouldn't you? And yet it does. Even in churches today, people deny all sorts of things that scripture teaches. And they bring upon themselves swift destruction. Many, this is such a, a sad word to read in this context, isn't it? Many shall follow their pernicious ways. Not not a few, not not a, a small little offshoot is going to be, be led astray. This isn't like Israel in the wilderness where there was a kind of a remnant at the back of the, the stragglers at the back that get, got picked off by the enemy. We're reading of many, a large proportion, are going to be affected by those that bring in these false teachings. Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. You notice what's going to happen? There's going to be this inversion, as Isaiah spoke of. The things that are good will be spoken of as evil, and the things that are evil will be spoken of as good. And people like us this morning that believe the Bible, that stick to the Bible, we'll be told that we're wrong. We'll be told that we're intolerant, that we are in some way being uh, discriminatory towards other people. Well, that's not the case at all. The Scripture's always been there. It's always been our rule, always been our guide. And people are moving away from Scripture. They are, to all intents and purposes, creating new religions. But they still call their faith Christianity. They still would like us to believe that the God they worship is the God of the Bible. They speak of Jesus, and they tell us that it's the same Jesus. And yet, it's clearly not from the details. But the Bible tells us who God is. It tells us of God's character. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. And yet we're now being told that we have a God that's okay with all sorts of different things and accepts this and accepts that. And it's a God that wouldn't send people to hell. And if you've got a God that wouldn't send people to hell, do you have the wrong God? It's not the God of the Bible. So let's look briefly at Jeremiah this morning. Jeremiah referred to as the weeping prophet. I just love Jeremiah. I think of all the prophets. He just amazes me. He was the most unsuccessful individual, I think, in Scripture. And yet he was so obedient. And it really helps us to rethink the whole idea of success. What is success? You know, we would think maybe as a church that if we had loads of people coming and there was lots of money coming in to enable us to do all sorts of things and go out and evangelize, that's success, is it not? Well, no, not necessarily. You see, success is defined by God's standard, by obedience. Not by the results that we perceive. And in our own lives, we may go through times where we're challenged, like Pavel was sharing this morning, difficult times that we don't understand. You know, the world would look at that and say, we're not being successful. But if we're being obedient by God's standards, oh, that's the greatest success. And Jeremiah, an incredible prophet, he preached and preached and preached and nobody listened, nobody cared about what he was going to say. People got really upset with him, he got thrown in a dungeon and you know, you read through the book, it's incredible that, that he carried on. But Jeremiah got to a very low point once. He cried out to God and said, I've had enough, I don't want to do this anymore. A little bit like Timothy, we were talking about a few weeks ago. Just kind of got to that point. And the Lord says, if you've run with a footman and they've wearied you, how will you contend with the horses? I, I just love that verse. It's God saying, 
come on, get up, put yourself together. If you think this is hard, how are you going to cope when it really gets difficult? Jeremiah does pick himself up, dusts himself off, realizing that he's not standing on his own feet, his own strength. He's standing in the grace of God. He's been doing, he's doing what he's doing because he's been called to it. And we read Jeremiah 1, the first few verses, it says, The word of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth. Sounds like he's got the lisp, doesn't it? It's in Anathoth. Hilkiah, the, the priest, this is where the, his, his, his father was of the priests that were there. So he's of the, the priestly tribe of, of Levites in the land of Benjamin. From what we understand, there was kind of a school of, of prophets, a school of priests there um, in this little place. People that were loyal to the Lord, that loved the Lord in the land of Benjamin, just outside Jerusalem area. And it says, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So we're given the, the kind of time scale to make it easy for you. That's the time frame we're looking at, this block at the bottom. He's prophesying during the reign of all of these kings. Okay, And those details, by the way, that we're given are so, so precise. What we find from Scripture is that Josiah, the first of the kings in that list, uh, he dies in battle. He was a good king, but he died in battle against Pharaoh Necho. Very interesting situation there. Pharaoh Necho seems to be marching into battle with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the question is, how did he get it? Josiah seemingly wanting to take it and get it put back in the temple. And he goes out to try and claim it and dies in battle. Uh, God's plan was not for that to happen at that time. And then you see Josiah has those three sons. Jehoaz, who's immediately taken away by Pharaoh Necho. Uh, Pharaoh Necho went off to battle uh, and he came back. And on his way back to Jerusalem, he takes Jehoaz. So then Jehoiakim is kind of put on the throne. He dies quite young, age 36, and his son Jehoiachin reigns for just three months and taken to Babylon. Jehoiachin is also known as Jeconiah. Um, again, it's interesting, uh, the details we're told about him. A blood curse is placed upon him and his descendants. Um, and then finally, the third son of Josiah, Zedekiah, uh, comes to the throne. And he reigns for 11 years, kind of under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's kind of a vassal king appointed, allowed to reign only because Nebuchadnezzar says he can. And then finally he's taken uh, to Babylon himself. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4 we read, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. What a statement. To say that even before Jeremiah was born, God had a plan for his life. And that plan was for Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. Not just Israel, but to the nations. And, he, and Jeremiah responds and says, oh, Lord, God, behold, I cannot speak, for I'm a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Verse 9 carries on. It says, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms. Now look at his ministry. And think of today. Think of how unpopular this would be. To root out. Well, that's not very kind of encouraging, is it? And to pull down. 
Now straight away, churches would say, oh, you can't, can't say those kind of things. That's, that's not very helpful. And to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down. And when he's done all that, then to build and to plant. But you know, there has to sometimes be that rooting out, that pulling down, that destroying, throwing down and building and planting. Sometimes God will completely destroy something before he allows it to be built up. Sometimes the Lord does that in our own lives. We've seen that. And the Lord certainly does that in churches. I've seen it in many churches that I've been aware of. And I think the Lord's done it here. The Lord brought us right down to just a handful of people, just a very few number, some years ago. And God's been gradually building us up. God has a plan and a purpose in all of these things. But Jeremiah's message was to go to these people and to give them this message. Certainly not a popular message, not an enviable task in that sense. Verse 11 says, Moreover the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? What, what do you see? And he said, I see the rod of an almond tree. Then the word, then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast seen well, for I will hasten my word to perform it. You see, what, he, what he's seeing in this picture, this rod of an almond tree, it, it was early in the year. He shouldn't have seen it. shouldn't have seen this happening yet. Um, shouldn't have seen it budding and getting ready to, to flower but he sees it early, and the idea was that the Lord is going to do something very soon, very suddenly. Verse 13 says, And the word of the Lord came to me and said the second time, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is to, toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north shall an evil break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. This is Israel. This is the land that God had chosen, that God had called and given it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob and their descendants forever. And now God is saying he's going to allow judgment to come against it. You can imagine how the leaders of the nation felt when this message goes to them. Notice what we're told, verse 15. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north. Now speaking particularly Babylon, because although Babylon, if you look geographically, is to the east of Israel and of Jerusalem. The way they came in because of the, the trade routes was from the north. For though I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness. You see, this is why God is bringing judgment. The wickedness who have forsaken me, and notice, and have burnt incense unto other gods, and have worshipped the works of their own hands. Notice this. This is why God is going to bring judgment. Because they've tried to reinvent church, if I may put it another way. They've tried to reinvent the way they worship the Lord. They've tried to find new ways of doing things. One of the challenges they, they had throughout the time of the kings was the high places. Those high places, they would get to the top of the hills and they'd set up these shrines and so on there because a lot of them at that time, they worshipped the stars and the planets and so on. Interesting reasons and ideas behind why they did that, but nevertheless, they did. And as a result of that, God brought judgment upon them throughout the times of the kings. And some of the kings removed some of the high places at times. And then subsequent kings would rebuild them again. And, and so these, these places of worship were set up so that they could worship in the way that they wanted to. And they could worship God in the way they wanted to. Worship became something that was more about them than it was about the one they were worshipping. You know, the same is going on in the church today. We have exactly the same situation. 
This is just a, a, a screenshot of a website. There are many, there are many. And I, some of you may have seen this one before. And I'm not going to go through all the details. But this is, uh, it says at the top there, it says, uh, changing church in a changing culture. All right, and this particular church do all these kind of things. They, they, they have rather than just typical worship to the Lord, praising Jesus for his grace. Uh, poems, prayers, meditations, incantations, chants, responses. And they might use video or sculpture and all those kind of things, dance and, and so on. And then there's all sorts of other things. Uh, they have action-based ingredients, which include walking around, mime, body sculpture, circus arts, juggling, fire breathing. I mean, seriously? All these kind of things. It, it, it's just incredible. Again, just other visual-based things, because today the word is not enough. We have to be stimulated by visual things. Um, imagination-based ingredients. I have no idea what they mean by this, but it doesn't sit well, does it? Guided fantasies. Thinking, drawing, composing in real time, meditations, praying. And then the last one, uh, tactile or olfactory-based ingredients. Anointing, laying on of hands. The scripture says we shouldn't do that hastily, by the way, because of what it implies, and it's that identification with things. Incense, holding stones. Oh, how is that in any way worship? Other natural objects, molding. Washing clay. Just, see, God said to Israel that he was going to bring judgment upon them because they were reinventing the way they worship God. And we have churches today doing exactly the same thing throughout this country, throughout the world. They, they want to come up with new fresh ways to make church exciting, to make church something that, that people would want to go to. Well, church isn't about, we're not an entertainment centre. We're not here, so you go home again. I really enjoyed that this morning. That was really quite exciting. Now we should be going home challenged, wanting to know and love Jesus more. I mean, I would be happy if every Sunday we went home broken. Because that's what we need. Yes, we want to be encouraged in our faith, and that's what we fellowship together for, that we may build each other up in our most holy faith. But this stuff is not biblical. This is not what we're told to do. Again, just as happened in Israel, has happened in the church, and God will bring judgment. Do you remember we looked last week that Israel started with this love of espousal, this kind of like a relationship, like an engagement. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou went after me in the wilderness, in the land that was not sown. I got the same to Israel. Remember the early days when we got together? When I led you out of Egypt across the Red Sea and you really sought me. And we had this relationship. Well, again, as we saw last time, the church of Ephesus, Ephesus means espousal, love of espousal. The angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he goes on and says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou have left thy first love. You see, Israel was told off for leaving their first love. And the church, exactly the same. Why? Well, we go on in Jeremiah 2 verse 8. We read this. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Doesn't that sound a little familiar? You know, you go to most Bible seminaries today, and they don't teach about the Lord. They don't teach about Scripture. They teach man's ideas and man's opinions. 
They'll give you multiple choice. They won't teach you that God created the heavens and the earth and see all that is in them in six days. Despite scripture saying that clearly, despite God writing that with his own finger, they'll tell you you can believe whatever you want. And they'll give you multiple choice about almost every aspect of the Christian faith. And so many people go to Bible colleges and they come out with their faith being made shipwrecked. Many years ago, I was at a pastor's fraternal breakfast um, back in, in Dealing, Kent. And one of the ministers happened to just be commenting before we got, got into the, the main part of our meeting. He was just sitting around having breakfast. And he said two of the people that he went to Bible college with had now walked away from the faith. One had committed suicide and one of them no longer walked with the Lord as a result of their time at Bible college. Because everything that they thought and they believed when they went was gradually and systematically undone. Their faith was completely destroyed by the things they were told. They were taught to doubt the authority of Scripture. They were told that, that the Torah wasn't written by Moses, that it was written by these four individuals and this um, documentary hypothesis, as you may have stumbled across and heard about at times. Just all ideas that are being brought in by, by people who have no regard and no love for Scripture. And they were gradually taught these things one after another after another so that they had no trust, no no respect, value for the scripture. Well, we'll look at that in a moment as to what Jeremiah says. I've, I've shown you this before. I'm just going to just quickly fly through this. But there was a poll done in America. They interviewed a bunch of pastors. Um, and there were 7,441 ministers that were interviewed. And they were basically asked these questions. Do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact? And... Methodists, 51% of their ministers said they didn't. Again, you can see the numbers. Episcopalian, 35%. I mean, a huge proportion of pastors in American churches, and it's no different in this country, by the way. A huge proportion of pastors don't even believe in the resurrection. I'm sure you remember some years ago, the Bishop of Dunra's stupid comments saying that the resurrection was just a conjuring trick with bones. I mean, I don't even want to know what he means by that. Interesting, wasn't it, that very, very shortly after that, York Minster got struck by fire on a day that there was only one tiny cloud in the sky. It happened to be right above York Minster. Yeah, don't think God was particularly impressed with his comments. Then the question, do you believe in the virgin birth? I mean, 60% of Methodist ministers, 49% of Presbyterian ministers, and so on, said they didn't believe in the virgin birth. Well then, was Jesus just an ordinary man? Well, then how could he pay for your sin? How could he be the saviour of the world? The question, do you believe in the scriptures of the errant work of God in faith, history, and secular matters? 95% of Episcopalian ministers in America said they didn't. And again, in this country, I guarantee you it's the same. I was teaching at a church many years ago. And I had the opportunity on Saturday to teach to the young people. On the Sunday we went along to the main service and the minister stood up in the evening service and he was reading a portion of scripture and he read it and he just, oh, this is from First Corinthians, I'll give you my explanation and tell you the details as to why you're absolutely wrong. But he said, oh, this is just one of those mistakes in the Bible. He said that to his congregation. Now, what, what does that do to the congregation's faith in scripture when the pastor says, oh, this is just one of those mistakes in the Bible? implying that there's many others. No, there's many ministers in this country this morning that are teaching or supposedly teaching their congregations that don't believe the Bible is the word of God. See, in Jeremiah's day, the pastors, those that were supposed to be leading the nation, didn't know the law. 
And God brought judgment upon them. Verse 12 of Jeremiah 2 says this, Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, and be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, In Scripture, repeatedly, the word of God is spoken of as water. It's the water of the word. And rather than taking the pure water of the word, we've hewn out for ourselves broken cisterns. All these supposed new versions, and we've talked a lot about this. But there's versions like this, the scholar's version, which is just a, a kind of a, a retake or a translation, supposedly, of the five Gospels. You know, and just look at the bit highlighted there. This group uh, for the Jesus Seminar in America, you know, this dreadful group, they said, finally they studied, debated, and voted on each of more than 1,500 sayings in the inventory. They voted on what they think Jesus said, and then that gets included. I'm sorry, that's not our, our, our prerogative. We don't get to say what we think Jesus said. We have what Jesus said. It's in the word of God. Supposedly, the New Testament, an understandable version, it's referred to as. And even in the notes, it says this. It says that the text does not guarantee to be exactly what the Holy Spirit inspired. Well, then I don't want to read it. It's uh, it inspired the original writers to recall, but rather represents what he, the translator, understand those writers to be saying. Well, this is a commentary then. It's not a Bible. You see, the problem is we have so many so-called Bibles, all they are is commentaries. We need to understand that. If you use it as a commentary, fine. But don't take it as scripture. We go through, there's so many different versions today. Even the NIV, it says this, this claim for the New Testament, it says the best current Greek New Testament text we use. No, we use the Sinaiticus. I've got a book on the back of the table there that shows that the Sinaiticus was a much, much later forgery in the 18th century. It's interesting. In one year, I've got a blog I'm halfway through writing, and one day I'll get it up on the line, online. But in one year, it was the year that Origin of the Species came out. It was the same year that Sinaiticus was foisted upon the world, and we're told that it's an authentic version of Scripture with so many passages altered and amended and changed and erased and that becomes the backbone for almost all modern versions. I'm not going to go through all of these now, but it's scary when we start to look. Israel were told off because they'd rejected the Lord as that source, the living water, and they tuned broken systems. The church had done the same. Also, it says in verse 21 of Jeremiah 2, Yet I have planted the ennoble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Does that sound familiar? Well, it should do if you've read Matthew 13, because we read there another parable he put, put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. All right, a mustard seed, the, the mustard bush grows to, to yea height. No, no higher than these plants in the front here. But this has become a tree. It becomes something it should never have been. God says of Israel, you became something you, you weren't supposed to be. You turned into a degenerate plant. And the church has become exactly the same thing. The church was never supposed to be this political entity. But because of what happened with Constantine and then later on with the birth of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, the church became something that it was never intended to be. Well, 
The birds of air, the air, always in scripture are seen in a negative context, negative light. They speak of the work, workers of Satan, the ministers of iniquity, working in the branches of the church. Jeremiah 2.22 says this, For though thou wash with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thy iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. What a contrast between that and what we read in Isaiah 18, 1.18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they should be as wool. Isn't this a contradiction? We've got one passage saying, doesn't matter how deep that dye has gone, you can be cleansed. And then another verse in Jeremiah that's telling us, it doesn't matter what you wash with, whether you wash with acid or whatever, it's not going to remove the stain of your sin. What's the difference? Repentance. There's no repentance. There's no genuine desire to seek God. In Isaiah, the Lord is speaking to people that are willing to humble themselves before him. But in Jeremiah, there are people that weren't willing to bow the knee. Jeremiah, again, 2.26 says, As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets. Notice this, as the thief is ashamed when he is found. Doesn't that ring a bell? Revelation 3.3, 3, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I shall come upon thee. The Lord says to Jeremiah and to Israel at that time, in that build up to judgment, that he would come upon them as a thief and they would be ashamed. The Lord says exactly the same thing to the church. For when they shall say, verse Thessalonians 5, 3 and 4, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as a travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But then you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. But for the apostate church, judgment will come like a thief in the night. Now, again, in Jeremiah's day, this is what we read in 2.27, saying to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. They talked about a root, a lump of a tree. And to a stone, saying that this is where I came from. You're my creator. Because what they used to do is chop down trees or get a stump of a tree and then carve an image out of it and then worship it. A little bit like they did with the golden calf and that kind of idea. And throughout Israel's history, these kind of things happen. And the Lord says, you know, you're taking these things and you're saying, Thou art my father. And to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me and not their faces. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. Well, isn't that what we've done? You know, the the Anglican Church apologised to Charles Darwin, posthumously. Incredible. But isn't the, the insult of today greater? Because we attribute everything to nothing. And many churches now will... Tell us that, that Darwin was right and so on. And say the Anglican Church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, has made the same, similar comments. How hard it is for groups like Answers in Genesis and Creation Science Movement and many others to get into churches to speak to them about the truth of God's word. People don't want to hear it. And notice what God says. But in the day of their trouble, notice what's going to happen. They're going to cry out. They will say, Arise and save us. Doesn't that sound a little bit similar to what we read in Matthew 7? 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So again, they will cry out. And the Lord says, I'm not going to hear you. Jeremiah 2.22 reminds us that thine iniquity is marked before me. God keeps account of that which is past, we're told in Ecclesiastes. And yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Revelation 3.17? Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not thou wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. See, in Jeremiah's time, the church was so, the leaders were saying, we've not sinned. We've not done anything wrong. And the church, again, the church of today, the church of Laodicea, doesn't recognize its own poverty. And it's also what we're told in First Timothy 4, remember a few weeks back we were going through this, of those that have had their consciences seared with a hot iron. Those that are departing from the faith in these times. Jeremiah 3, verses 4 and 5. Verse, it says, Will thou not from this time cry unto me, my father? Thou art the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldest. See, God is saying he's going to bring judgment. He's not going to hold back his anger He's going to bring that judgment. Now, it's interesting because in Jeremiah 3, 6 and 7, we read this. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Has thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain, under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And I said, after she had done these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. See, Israel were... Judged because of their iniquity. But actually, Judah should have seen those things and learned the lessons. In Revelation 17, we'll look at this in a little bit more detail next week. But we read there, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying, Unto me come hither I will show unto thee the judgment of the great hall which sits on many waters. Verse 4 carries on. And the woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet, color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. The parallel with Israel, the northern kingdom, is quite stark when you start to look at the details. But what's interesting is this. Verse 6 carries on. Then the Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen which backsliding Israel has done? She's got up on every high mountain, every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done these things, turn unto me, but she returned not. They were given the opportunity to repent. It's exactly what we read in Revelation 2. Again, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. The parallels are incredible the more we go through this. Now this is also interesting because Judah should have learned the lessons. That verse at the end just says, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned unto me. Now, what we find is that Israel was spoken of as having done some good things. Now, it's a little bit like the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has done many, many good things through history. You know, lots of humanitarian things. Great relief works and all sorts of things they've done. Good works. 
Sadly, the, the Protestant church, the Reformation church, has even failed in some of those areas. And it's saying that, that Judas kind of turned half-heartedly. Well, that's very much like the Reformation church. Some of those doctrines during the Reformation were reclaimed salvation by grace, but so many other things were left undone. Very much like the church of Sardis, which I think speaks of Luke to a few weeks ago, of the Protestant church. And he says, I've not found thy works perfect. It's not complete. You didn't go the whole way. You didn't do what you should have done. And then the Lord said to me, the backsliding Israel has justified itself more than treacherous Judah. Again, the church of Thyatira, which seems to depict the Catholic church, says, I know thy works, thy charity, thy service, thy faith, thy patience, all spoken of as good things. And the last to be more than the first, and yet God would still bring judgment. But Judah didn't even do those things. The church hasn't, or the, the Protestant church hasn't even done those things. The, the church of Sardis has nothing good said. This was uh, some years ago, but it illustrates the point. There's a previous, pope, a previous archbishop now. But uh, Pope Benedict XVI, an Anglican leader, uh, Rome Williams, acknowledged there were serious obstacles to closer ties between the churches. Uh, a blunt reference to Vatican disapproval of gay bishops, women priests, and blessings of same-sex unions in the Anglican Church. Uh, Benedict and the Archbishop of Canterbury talking privately in the papal library and then praying together in the chapel came together Thursday to celebrate 40 years of dialogue aimed at uniting the churches split apart in 1534 by King Henry VIII's anger over the Vatican's refusal to annul his marriage. It's sad that not just that point, but, but for a long time now, there's been this aim to reconcile with the Roman Catholic Church. And even the Lutherans are doing the same thing. I mean, what would Martin Luther say? What about all those people that died during the Reformation? Standing for truth. I'm just going to skip through some of these things for time. Jeremiah 4, verse 3 and 4 says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench because of the evil of your doings. I mean, that just, it's the same wording, the same idea of the things that we read in Matthew 13 about the types of soil and how we've got to have the right soil. Jeremiah 4 says, verse 5, Declare in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow you the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves. Let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard towards Zion. Retire, stay not, for I'll bring evil from the north and a great destruction. This is what the Lord was saying. And it says, For in the time of trouble... Oh, sorry, Psalm 27, verse 4, makes the same kind of statement. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. Both of them are talking about this, this time of, of judgment or problems coming. The, the verse in Jeremiah speaks of the blowing of a trumpet. Oh, we've, we've moved on. The, the church doesn't accept, by and large, the rapture. We can look at many, many scriptures that speak about the return of Jesus and how we need to be ready. How Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us that we will be able to escape that time of judgment. Again, for the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to skip some of these. It will all be on the web. You can look at them and I'll let you to, to read through and you'll see the parallels uh, that are going on. 
You know, the, the verse there just in Jeremiah, then said I, um, O Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people. And Jerusalem saying, you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches unto the soul. Well, this is what we read in scripture, that God is going to allow delusion to be sent on people. People will believe the lie because they didn't retain God in their knowledge and so on. Let's uh, draw to a close. There's so much more, you know. There's this denial of God's word continually in the church today, and God will bring judgment for it. There's this continually, continual rewriting of, of scripture. You know, in Jeremiah's time, they were, the prophets, the priests were going around saying, oh, there's going to be peace. This is the city of the great king. How could God bring judgment here? But of course, God did bring judgment. We got people in the church today who say that there's going to be peace. We're going to bring around, bring about this wonderful kingdom and Jesus eventually will return and reign over it once we've got it set up for him. It's not what scripture teaches at all. In Jeremiah's day, they were chided for not having shame at their iniquity. And today all sorts of things are going on in the church and people have no shame of those things. We have warnings in Jeremiah's day that the trumpet was going to be blown, that the the time was coming and the leaders didn't want to hear it. We have people, church leaders today, writing books which tell us to, to not worry about prophecy. Don't worry about those things. And yet scripture teaches very clearly that we need to be very awake and understand what's going on. One final scripture. Jeremiah 8 verse 9 says, The wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. That sums it all up. You know, when we reject the word of the Lord, we have nothing to stand on. And it's purely down then to man's wisdom. I encourage you to do your own study in Jeremiah You'll see the parallels are incredible with the days in which we live. And God brought judgment upon Jerusalem, despite the fact that it was the the place where he had had his temple, despite the fact that it was the place he said he would place his name, in the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, the Lord will bring judgment upon the church, the apostate church. The, The true church will be gathered into his barn, will be safe, will be secure, will be taken out of the way. We'll look at the conclusion of this next week as we look at what is going to happen with this apostate church and how all faiths, all religions are gradually merging together for this final one world church that we'll see in the days ahead. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed in your word, Lord, that which we need to know. Lord, everything that you have shown your prophets is there for us to understand that we wouldn't fall victim to these lies and these deceptions that are abounding in these days. Father, we pray that you keep our hearts and minds firmly fixed upon Jesus and upon your word. Lord, we pray that your word will be so central to our lives that everything we hear, everything that we, we receive from other people, Lord, we'd be like the Bereans, that we would receive it with readiness but search the scriptures to see if those things are so. Oh, Lord, we want to stay true to you. Lord, we want to finish our course well. Lord, even like those kings of Israel, Lord, who had great careers and great times of reigning and serving you and then failed at the end. Lord, we pray that won't be us, that we would stay true to the end. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Bless us, keep us close to you, we pray, as we continue to walk and to live lives of worship, responding to the grace of God. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.